I'm uh, grateful for the opportunity to talk about something I love and have loved um, for a very long time. I got interested in economics when I was in high school and had a fellow in my church who, was, who fed me books. And uh, my father had an interest in economics. He was a physician, but he had an interest in economics. And so we'd sit around the table and talk about some of these things. And went to college thinking I'll minor in economics, I'll major in engineering. Then I took calculus. <laughs> and I took chemistry uh, the, the same semester, which was disastrous. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll make my minor into a major, and so I studied economics, and I found out it's, to me, it's really interesting. Um, found out later I had to take calculus anyway. Didn't really escape. I will not get into the calculus here with you. Um, I'm barely capable of it myself. But I think as, as Christians, we need to develop an ability to think about all kinds of the world, all aspects of the world around us, not necessarily in uh, great depth, um, but develop that habit of applying scripture to the problems that we face. And there are a lot of, I think, misconceptions about what economics is. I hope I can clear some of that up here and help you see that there is great gain to be had, and I don't mean necessarily material gain, but great gain to be had in learning what the Bible has to say about stewardship, which is really what economics is about. Um, we get the word economics from one of the words that is translated steward in the Bible. Now, I'm, I'll qualify that by saying that I am not a scholar of Greek in the least, but I do know that the Greek word for steward is um, uh, oikonomos, oikonomos, which means the manager of a household. Um, and there are two parts to that word, oikos, meaning household, and then nomos, meaning law or regulation or management. And so studying economics is really the study of that stewardship, at least the way it was originally thought of. So, for example, we see this in, in, in Luke 12, uh, 42. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? And then we see, we see this again in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. So there's a related word, uh, 
oikonomikos, meaning household management. Uh, the Greek historian Xenophon wrote a book by that title um, about household management and agriculture. And I'm going to borrow here from an introduction to an excellent textbook written by a friend of mine, Sean Rittenauer, who teaches at Grove City College. Uh, he wrote a book called um, Foundations of Economics, A Christian View. And if you're looking for a good introduction to economics from a Christian perspective, I would have trouble coming up with anything better than that. But his, his introduction in that textbook says economics is not only about money, stuff, or even resource allocation. Economics is really about helping man solve one of the greatest dilemmas confronting him. It is the dilemma that we discover after reading the first few chapters of Genesis. The first command that God gives man is found in Genesis 1. Here God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Rittenauer says, the, the above mandate involves a lot of activity focused on material concerns. It includes reproduction and building things. The Hebrew word translated as dominion implies more than merely to rule. It communicates the idea of dominion for use. Consequently, the cultural mandate includes rearranging what we find in nature to suit our needs and to glorify God. Contrary to contemporary environmentalism, it includes ruling over every living thing and all of nature, not communing with nature as co-equal. It includes taking God-given property and using it in the production of goods that benefit others and ourselves. Um, note that, and, and this is a common misconception, I, I sometimes go to places where I meet new people, which is, I, I tend to be rather introverted, that's difficult for me, so <laughs> they, they say, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I, I teach economics, and they say, oh, economics. Nine times out of ten, I get this kind of, oh, I, I hated economics. I'm used to that by now, and it doesn't, doesn't really bother me. But, but if I don't get that response, I get the, um, so where do you think the stock market is going? <laughs> and uh, so I say, if I knew, I would not be teaching economics. <laughs> I would be playing the stock market. But since I don't know, I teach. You know that old saying, those who can do and those who can't teach. Those who can't teach, teach education. But that, <laughs> picking on my uh, education major people. All right, so economics is not just about personal finance, and it's not just about household management. So the, the, the term is mutated from the original oikonomos uh, or household management. It's not just about how to manage your individual affairs in your household, although it can help with that 
some. Um, so the, 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 the thing where, where the, the, uh, the area where economics gets really interesting, I think, is where we study our interactions outside of our household, uh, where we look at our interactions with strangers, the, the broader economy where most of us spend the majority of our time and most of our interactions, if you think about it, um, outside of our household or with people that we don't know very well, that aren't in our you know, inner circle. Paul Hain, um, who's a Christian economist, um, explained why a concept of household stewardship cannot carry through to the larger economy. Uh, the problem is, he said, that we live in a complex, decentralized, highly specialized society that no one controls or can control. What we call our economy is not at all analogous to a household or anything else that could possibly be managed. A modern industrial society characterized as it is by extensive and minute division of labor is a social system far too complex to be managed by any oikonomos not endowed with godlike powers. And so one of the things we need to approach this study with is a heavy dose of humility. Um, I know a lot less than I thought I knew when I was in graduate school. Um, and yet, there are those who have studied economics and related disciplines in great detail, and they think they've got a grasp on this. They, they know now enough to manage not only, not only their own lives, but the lives of people around them. And I think that there are some problems with that. Individually, we don't know much. Uh, we need to interact with others as a part of good stewardship. That means we give the limited knowledge that we have, we get the limited knowledge that others have, and much of that interaction takes place through a marketplace. And so a lot of what we, we study in economics is really about how to understand that kind of interaction, not exclusive to the marketplace, but other things as well. In a sense, economics is really about cause and effect. And our stewardship or our management is based on that understanding of cause and effect. If we do this, then we can expect that to happen. Um, it also looks at goals or objectives, which are affected by our morals. Um, so to try to divorce economics from our Christian thinking about what our proper goals are, I think, is, is a mistake. Um, our morals come from our beliefs about God. So let's think a little bit about why we would need to study economics from a biblical perspective. Um, one, I think, is simply to better obey God. Modern Christians are unaccustomed to thinking about the Bible as being applicable to all parts of life, including economics um, or public policy. 
Um, I, I, when I got out of graduate school, I taught for two years at a large Christian university. And um, then I, my family is all in South Carolina. I was kind of looking for a way to get back here, so I did eventually. But I spent two years teaching at this large Christian university, and, and I found that a lot of the students think of Christianity as that's your personal pathway to heaven plus some moral stipulations about how you have to handle your, yourself. And other than that, there was very little thinking about how we develop a Christian worldview. It was very frustrating for me um, trying to get students to think about Christianity as being more than just your ticket to heaven, uh, but to think about it in, 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 a broader, in broader applications. So uh, the God who created the world, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who deposes kings and raises up others, is not a God who is concerned only with your individual salvation. A person's conduct is expected to change when converted by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that includes conduct in all of our social interactions, including those social interactions that we, we think of when we think of economics. So as we try to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ, including economic thought, we should, I think, consider the far-reaching implications of the Christian faith. It's a faith for all of life. And my specialty is economics, but there are other specialists in different areas where you, you can think about your occupation or your field. In, that's your task as a Christian, to, not just to think about your, your individual conduct um, in your household, um, but to think about your conduct in, in the world at large. And the second, I think the second reason that a Christian needs to think about economics is to become a better steward and to bless people around us by being better stewards. It's not just for our own benefit, it's for the benefit of those around us. And I think we can start studying economics from a biblical perspective by starting where the Bible starts. God's creation of the world. So if we look at Psalm 24, uh, 1 and 2, uh, and I, my, my version that I've got here is, a, I think this is from the New King James. It's not the version you're perhaps accustomed to, but Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded, upon, founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And then Psalm 50, 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And then in Psalm 95, 4 and 5, in his, hand, <clears throat> in his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Now that's, you know, God made this world. He owns it by rights. 
and everything in it, including us. Um, even if you're not a believer, God still owns you. You're his. Now, you're still under the curse of sin, but you're still his, along with the wild beasts of the field and everything else. So, thinking about where we fit into this world that God owns, where do our management rights come into this? So if we go back to Genesis, we look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17, we see, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Um, We were given from Adam management rights over parts of creation. And in fact, we were commanded to use those, that, that management task to God's glory. We may do that well or we may do that badly, but that's our task. Abraham Kuyper uh, said in his, his book, uh, Christianity and the Class Struggle, I guess he would have been writing this maybe Hundred. Uh, the copyright on this book is 1950, but I think he wrote that before. Um, let's see, this would have been around 120 years ago, maybe, something like that. He said, if the one contends that every concept of property is absolute and the other proposes to turn over all individual property to collective ownership, then the man who lives by God's word will here interpose the one true theory that God gave in his ordinances and in his name witness that absolute property can be spoken of only by God, that all our property is only loaned, that our management is only stewardship. We, we are not absolute owners of anything. We are responsible ultimately to, ultimately to God for the use of his property. Kuiper later said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence of which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let's think about the, um, that, that the, the responsibility we have toward God with our, our property. Uh, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, uh, 14 through 30, we see the Olivet Discourse, which is the last of Christ's uh, five great discourses in Matthew. And it may not be the main message of the pas- uh, parable, but Christ teaches in that parable that we are answerable to God for the use of the blessings that he's bestowed on us. So we are, when we're given property... We are responsible to make a profit on it. Uh, Profit's not a bad word. It's a commandment. Take what you have and turn it into something greater. That's what we mean by making a profit. The unprofitable servant was cast into the outer darkness. If we have a talent, and that was a sum of money, a large sum of money, um, 
to the to the audience to which he was speaking, but it could be our special abilities as well. It's something that we've been given stewardship over. If we have that and we're not using it for God's glory, then we're displeasing God. Wise risk-taking is necessary to create wealth. And so the earning of interest is a praiseworthy thing. Uh, For much of the church's history, charging interest was viewed as a sin. We may come back to that in a future week because the concept of usury is something that is still misunderstood, um, I think, by, by Christians. God sets the terms of transfers of property. So God has authorized certain transfers. For example, we find in Genesis 14, 18 through 20, the foundation of the biblical tithe. Uh, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe, or tenth of all. God has authorized this, and this is our acknowledgement on a regular basis of his ultimate ownership. Uh, Second, we have taxation for just purposes. Uh, Romans 13, very well known uh, to to those who are thinking about the responsibilities of government. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So God has required certain things of us. We are not autonomous on this earth as being spheres of authority with no other connection. We have, there's the church, there's the state, there's, we have those, um, those other authorities in our, in our lives. Anything other than an involuntary, uh, sorry, anything other than a voluntary transfer, um, outside of that, that God requires of us, um, would be theft. Um, if, if you take something that God has given stewardship to someone else for that thing, that's, that's theft. Um, so if we're thinking about the responsibilities of the state that we see in Romans 13, uh, the state is, is bound in its responsibilities. It is not entitled to anything and everything that it wants. And so we're, I don't want to get into, into that too much here, but because um, that's a large can of worms, but it's maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back to that in a future week when I've got a little more time. But um, if if just as the church is responsible to use a tithe for biblical purposes, the state is responsible to use tax funds for biblical purposes. Of course, there's a wide disagreement about what that entails, but again, we'll maybe come back to that later on. But if you refuse, as a Christian, if you refuse to pay a tithe, you're stealing, in effect. I mean, the it's not really yours. It was, it, it's, 
God's money that he requires of us, and if we don't pay it, that's, that's theft. It's a form of theft. In Malachi, we see this um, spelled right out. Malachi 3, 8, and 9. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. So there, you know, our stewardship has conditions on it. It's not like God gave us stuff and we get now to do whatever we want to with it. We're responsible to him for what we do with that. Our very lives are God's. If you take a life, if you murder, you are stealing from God. That was God's life. There are exceptions to this. I would say capital punishment is an exception. I would say self-defense is, is pretty clear in Scripture. There's an exception there. Um, you know, uh, just war. Uh, we, and for example, with capital punishment, and we see this in Exodus 21, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Um, Self-defense, for example, um, Exodus 22, if the thief is found breaking in and he, he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. And again in Luke 22, 36, uh, then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Um, I think it's implied there that we are we are God's property, we can defend God's property against those who would unjustly take it from us. Um, let me make an application here. I, I'll, I teach every summer at a, a week-long um, conference for college students in Auburn, where I went to grad school, and there's a think tank down there that I'm involved with called the Mises Institute, named after an Austrian economist um, named Ludwig von Mises, um, who died in 1973. Um, and one of their, one of the um, great Austrian economists that I have a high regard for in many areas um, is a, a fellow named Murray Rothbard. Um, Rothbard was not a believer, and you can see this in some of the things that he said very clearly. Um, he wrote a, a book called The Ethics of Liberty. And in that book, he takes a view of property that centers property in the hands of the individual. He did not believe that property was ultimately God's. And so for him, everything came down to self-ownership. You own yourself, and that is the absolute. And so this led him into some very um, treacherous waters. And unlike a lot of people who would shy away from specifying exactly what the logical implications of the self-ownership 
were, he came right out, right out and said it. So this is a, a short selection here from his book, The Ethics of Liberty. The proper groundwork for analysis of abortion is in every man's absolute right of self-ownership. This implies immediately that every woman has the absolute right to her own body, that she has absolute dominion over her body and everything within it. This includes the fetus. Most fetuses are in the mother's womb because the mother consents to this situation, but the fetus is there by the mother's freely granted consent. But should the mother decide that she does not want the fetus there any longer, then the fetus becomes a parasitic invader of her person. And the mother has the perfect right to expel this invader from her domain. Abortion should be looked upon not as murder of a living person, but as the expulsion of an unwanted invader from the mother's body. Any laws restricting or prohibiting abortion are therefore invasions of the rights of mothers. And you see where this took Rothbard. Away from God. Because his commitment was not to God. It was to the self-ownership. And I, I, I did not know Rothbard personally, and so I don't... He's, he uh, died about a little over 20 years ago, but, um, well, 25 years ago. And so I don't know what it, if there was something personal in him that led him to reject God. I, I benefited enormously from uh, uh, Renton Rathman's apologetics series, and um, I don't know if we've got recordings on that. I can uh, listen to some of the ones that I missed, but um, I, I was struck by that comment that he made early in the series where he said that it's not that people don't know. They know and they suppress the truth. So as we're thinking about economics, I think we have to start from that, that foundation that scripturally, we don't belong to God. Our bodies, uh, sorry, scripturally, we do belong to God. What did I say? We don't belong. To, uh, sorry, not that. <laughs> um, scripturally, we belong to God. We don't belong to ourselves. We are not the ultimate authority. Um, scripturally, um, if it, everything that we have is also God's, and we should, we should act accordingly. Our offspring belong to God. Um, if you fail to teach your children about God, if you fail to lead them through the word, then you are basically encouraging them to declare their own autonomy later in life. We are not autonomous, as Rothbard would have suggested. We are not autonomous. We are, um, we are gods, whether we acknowledge that or not. So when you raise your children and you, you, you are being a steward 
Uh, that doesn't, I mean, your, your children are not uh, things that you can control as you would drive a car. Um, I, I know that quite well. Um, you can't make your children uh, do the right thing. Um, but you can teach them, and then perhaps with that seed that's planted, um, they will acknowledge their own, their own subservience to God. So, I, I, you know, I'm not going to spend this, um, this series discussing supply and demand curves, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to spend this series even uh, on, a, on, on technical things of any sort. Um, what I want to urge us to do here is develop that pattern of thinking about economics that might carry over to other things as well, just developing that biblical worldview that we say, okay, whatever the study is, we study it with scripture at the foundation of it, and we study it with God's ownership at the foundation of it. Um, I'm, a, I'm intending to go through some things with you later in the month um, on diving into more detail on some of this. Like, for example, I'd like to spend some time talking about prices and wages. We've got a discussion going on nationally now about uh, minimum wages. And that's one of the key issues that has come up in the last few months. And it recurs every so often. We have another discussion about this. and we, So I'd, I'd like to spend some time talking about this, not as a kind of a policy wonk um, uh, getting into all the, the studies on this or that, but thinking about what role um, markets play for a Christian trying to steward themselves and thinking about government as a uh, trying to step into that role of steward as, as well. So we're going we're gonna to think about some of that. Uh, I know that in conversations that I have with people about these issues, a lot of times inflation comes up and um, monetary issues. Economics is about a lot more than just money, and so I, I hope to hope to be able to to show how Christians can think about these other things, our, our management of our property, but also um, where where does where does um, where does the government's role fit into this? It's a, it's a tricky area, and I don't want to turn this into uh, biblical thinking on government, per se, because this is, um, this is biblical thinking about economics. But in, invariably, governments are enmeshed in uh, economic affairs, and so I want to urge us to think carefully about some of those things as well. Um, let me... Uh, let me ask you if, if you think of anything either now or in the next several weeks that you are personally interested in uh, that relates to economics, then please pass that along to me and um, I'll try to address it as well as I can. I'm accustomed to teaching 20, 21 year, 19, 20, 21 year olds, and and they're all sort of captive audiences, and they have to be there, and they have to sit through my stuff because they want to get their finance degree or whatever it is, and and so they they're there. Um, 
not quite by force, but they're sorry. Yes, they're they're there because of parental expectations and various other motives that don't have as much to do with desire to learn. Once in a while, I get the pleasure of teaching somebody who's got a desire to learn. And um, don't worry, I'm not going to give you any homework or quizzes, although it's tempting. I sometimes think Sunday school classes might should have homework and quizzes. Transcripts, grades. I, I can't do that. I mean, it's against the rules, right? too hard to be flunked by God. And God's not going to flunk you. I'll flunk you. <laughs> right. I saw a, uh, you know, I, I teach um, at Wofford, as, as, um, as many of you know, and, and so, yeah, I, 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 I passed I passed through the student center on campus last year, and I noticed that there were some slogans and flyers and things up on the on a wall that students were supposed to write their own thoughts on the wall. And one of them said, uh, "God doesn't care about your GPA." God doesn't. God doesn't care about your GPA. And so <laughs> uh, that's, you know, back to the, the, what I opened up to, uh, today with. I'm, I'm, I hope that we're learning that God cares about more than your, your personal salvation, but cares about the implications of that for your life and the, the world around you. When you interact with other people, and we all have some kind of interaction related to our stewardship, then we, our interaction is supposed to be according to God's word, first and foremost. And we should be practiced in thinking about that. Um, God does care about your GPA, you know? And um, that it, it, if you're a Christian student, that doesn't mean that your job is to sit there and warm a desk in a classroom and try not to get flunked out, but to do your very best as a student to learn how to contribute something to, the, uh, to your own stewardship and the, and the stewardship of the society that you live in. So it's a little frustrating um, sometimes to see the, the narrow perspective that Christians have on, on what our work is to be. Um, so next time, I'll, I don't have any handouts, I'm sorry. I'm not up to the, to, to Renton Rathbun is a tough act to follow, I tell you. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> I didn't have any handouts. Um, part of that is because, um, well, 90% of that is because it would take time. <laughs> and uh, the other 10% is when, I, when you have a handout, you know where I'm supposed to go and you know what I didn't cover and you know where I'm, what I decided to skip over and what I decided to 
go over more of. So I, I'm, I don't have any handouts for you, but next time we're gonna do the ethics of prices and wages. Uh, two weeks from today, the plan is to, uh, to look at money and government. We'll talk about maybe inflation and some things like that. And uh, after that, <clears throat> I've got some ideas, but I would love to hear from you about what you would want me to cover. So please see me and let me know what you'd like for, to hear from me about. Um, let's close in prayer, and um, so let's bow our heads. Father, as we approach uh, an area that is sometimes uh, unfamiliar territory for us as Christians, we beg your, uh, your mercy and, and your wisdom applied to, this, um, to our thoughts on this. Let us Think your thoughts after you in the pattern that you've given to us. And we pray that you would help us to think clearly and to think well and wisely, um, not so much for our own benefit, but for your glory so that we can use the, the tools and the resources that you've given us to think, to think carefully about how we might serve our neighbors, how we might serve our nation, uh, how we might serve our fellow believers and uh, those who are outside your church in a way that is, um, is pleasing to you and is, um, is, is constructive toward the building of your kingdom. We pray that we would uh, have dominion over your creation in a way that is responsible and careful and wise we pray that you, uh, pray that you would instruct us over the next few weeks in how to do that and and uh, and to develop a pattern of thinking about this and other areas of our lives that are that are um, uh, that involve our 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 uh, connections with uh, other people and our relationship with you in Christ's name we pray amen